Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you, the listener, to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. What is up? Welcome to episode 130. Thanks so much for listening. It means so much to me. If I've brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook. Let me know what you want to hear more of. And please be sure to share the podcast. I'm truly grateful for your support. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hashdash. Currently, consumers leverage multiple online resources to research, find, and purchase cannabis products. Hashdash has created a single source for education, products, brands, dispensaries, and takes it one step further by pairing users with products that match their profile and needs through their unique matching algorithm, the smartest way to search and match with cannabis products. Sign up for their free beta release at hashdash.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter at hashdash and on Instagram at hashdash.com. Dr. Bradley joins today's episode, and to say he has lived an extraordinary life would be an understatement. He was recruited by the Mexican drug cartel as a teenager and rose up the ranks to become one of the top drug smugglers of narcotics in the United States. Despite multiple near-death experiences, he survived to turn his life completely around. Dr. Bradley was approached by the Department of Justice to serve as a contractor from 1998 to 2017. Dr. Bradley and I discuss how to thrive under the most horrific experiences and to emerge victoriously and to lean into empathy and put your footprint on this planet. I hope you all enjoy the conversation. Dr. Bradley, you have an extremely interesting story to say the very least. Author of the book titled Crisis Victory, breaking down the formula to take any crisis, obstacle, setback, and transform it into the greatest success of your life. And let me tell you, I mean this sincerely, your book pulled me in. Your your background and the way that you look at life, all of it encasing was extremely just attractive. To give listeners some contacts, Dr. Bradley, because your story is truly remarkable, from becoming one of the top drug smugglers of narcotics in the U.S., working with El Chapo, to working for the Department of Justice, to now helping those struggling, bring us into day one. Where did it all begin for you? It seems like your life truly altered the day you moved down to Mexico and you met your friend in Durango, Mexico. Where does your journey start? Where did it all begin for you? Well, thank you, Scott, for that introduction. And yeah, I think that's a perfect jump off point for this uh, this story to be told today. It began in 1969. A, a young 15-year-old kid out of the North Seattle, Washington, got caught smoking a cigarette in the bathroom. And back in 1969, they kicked you out for a half a year. 
and myself and two friends were immediately expelled and my mom didn't want me wandering the streets so she had a friend who owned a mining corporation in Durango and he said hey let's send the kid down south and uh, put him in the camp until he gets out which was a great idea uh, in, in, in their format I could see where they were coming at with this but they didn't know that it was a cartel controlled region and that uh, the village that they sent me into was probably about 200 people. And these were people that were working the poppy fields, uh, working the cultivation of marijuana. And back in 1969, marijuana was looked at like heroin is today. You know, it was a real bad thing. But living in the simplicity of the village lifestyle, uh, it really ingrained on me. Every home in that village had their doors open to me. They had such a love for me. And here's this blonde haired, blue eyed kid from Seattle, Washington, that never even heard Spanish spoken in 1969, catapulted into this in insanely, incredibly different environment. So it was very easy for that lifestyle, Scott, to imprint itself upon me. But first and foremost was the goodness and the love. And then later came the exposure to the violence and the danger that I did observe while I was uh, a child down there. I once uh, was eating in the cafeteria and I remember having uh, lunch with a friend and a, a guy walked in and put a gun to another man's head and blew his brains out right in front of me. And I remember later that nobody even got up and left. It was not an uncommon uh, thing, that type of violence. And I was told to never, ever discuss or talk about it. And until this year, 50 years later, I have never, ever mentioned that. And now it's coming out because the time for it to come out is now. So how we deal with suffrage, how we deal with uh, carrying a lot of weight that, as we were talking earlier, can lead to uh, suicides or it can lead to manic depressions, which is loss of family, loss of business, loss of home. These, it's indicative how in crisis events, that we come come forth with uh, the knowledge that we gain from suffering and manipulate it and maneuver it into a successful ending. So getting to the story again, uh, after I left the village, I said, aquí en su corazón vive la sangre de la ciudad. And my heart pumped the blood of that village and to someday return because now I was a child of that community. So I uh, entered the United States Army in 1971, got out in 74 and was on GI Bill and decided to go down on Christmas break vacation to visit my, my family, my compadres. And uh, so I went down there and when I got there, I mean, they threw this big feast for me. I truly was a child of their village. And they uh, approached me about uh, bringing a specific type of vehicle down that they could put compartments in and for me to start running marijuana into the United States. Now, this was a uh, latter 1974 uh, to 75, early 75 when my smuggling venture started. So yeah, I, I got a Ford LTD, drove it down there. We were able to compartmentalize 85 kilos of marijuana. And at the time, I think I was 21 years old, 20 or 21, and uh, hit the border with it, made it through customs, got it back up to Sacramento where I had relocated. And uh, in less than a month, I had over $80,000 in cash. And at that time, when you're bringing in a little over 350 a month on the GI Bill, that's a pretty significant impact. So right away, I returned to the village and uh, took my friend down there, $20,000 of the money, which is more than he had seen in his entire lifetime. And we said, yep, this is it. Now, bear in mind, as I had told you earlier, this is a cartel controlled uh, area, a region where a family whose name I'm not going to mention, uh, where I became connected with that family as my returns were coming and was be, being exposed to other people further up the ladder. Uh, to ultimately one point around 1979, it went from everybody with hugs and handshakes and moving marijuana to automatic weapons fire and extreme violence overnight because now we were moving cocaine stateside. In uh, 1979, I purchased small Cessna aircraft and uh, was flying out of the uh, southern Arizona desert there where the Sonora line hits and was able to land in a ranch just north of Hermosillo, load up kilos of cocaine and get them back across the line. I would thrive, thrive through the canyons. And now they have sophisticated technology where you can no longer do those type of trips. But I was at the tail end of that before that, that got created. Ultimately, I started flying cocaine up into the Seattle area uh, as a result of uh, growing the ladder up the ladder and became the largest cocaine trafficker in this part of the world at that time of my life. And in these modern days, they don't have the quantities, uh, Scott, that we had back at that time. 
but I was able to cultivate and design uh, trade routes, uh, safe houses, distribution points, uh, connecting with organized crime families, various other families uh, throughout the United States and Canada. And I built it to where personally I was moving a quarter to a third of a ton of cocaine a month, which isn't a lot. I had friends moving 20 plus tons a month. And uh, I had a, an associate of mine who was selling 20,000 kilos at a time from Pablo Escobar right to Manuel Noriega. So these were the years of the expansion and the growth of the cocaine industry. Um, and there was a lot of horrific uh, exposure. I've seen, I've seen countless deaths. I've seen very, very horrible things that are to this day very, very ingrained in me. And uh, as you may know from the reading of the book just last year, I had a kill order executed on me and I was left for dead. And I did die. I, I fully remember letting go of my life and saying, okay, it's all good, you know, and I was very peaceful and very happy with that, Scott. Uh, but, you know, the transitioning to go from that type of an environment of extremism, uh, I, I believe that's something much larger than all of us, Scott, formulates something of goodness as a result of that massive exposure of violence and hostility that I survived. And I've had multiple near-death experiences over the course of the years. I've been kidnapped and tortured. I've been uh, in hiding for days at a time, you know, where people were walking around with automatic weapons, killing anybody that wasn't of their village or community. And I have survived countless measures of this type of accord. And about 27 or 28 years ago, uh, I had decided to get out of the cartel world, so I had gone down to Culiacan. I had, I had met uh, El Chapo twice by this time, and I was down there. They said I owed him some money that I didn't. It was about a half a million bucks or something like that. And so I got the money to him. I flew down on a plane and said, "Okay, my debt's met. I'll set you guys up with everything." But I'm out. Hugs, handshakes. I'm out. I got back home and had 350 kilos of cocaine sitting in my driveway, and uh, because of the who I was. I was a boss. I was able to say we're heated up, get that load the heck out of here. I had a little over 3 million cash on me at the time. I threw it in the van to send it south. And the next day I walked into the U.S. Attorney's office. I was not going to let my children that were being born grow up in the same world that I had grown up in. And I would like to say, Scott, I'm not a snitch or a rat running around telling on people in the population. I had a laser focused specific target that I had to take down because they were taking me down and I just hit them hard first. Resulting from that, I did end up going to federal prison. Uh, during my years, in, I was sentenced eight years and during the years that I was in there, I became a certified hospice counselor, completed seminary, uh, graduated through seminary and was ordained in federal prison and worked in the education department, helping other people get GEDs and to advance their skills so they would have something relative to offer uh, universally, if you will, when they were released from their tragedies of life. And this is when the concept of taking that which I had survived, all of the evil I was a part of and had contributed to, uh, to do acceptance, take responsibility, and now convert it into goodness. And these last 19 years of my life, brother, I've worked in the homeless camps and sat around many campfires at night watching two or three people sharing the same rig and pulled people out of overdoses with Narcan kits and cleaned up abscesses and watched young prostitutes flag the next guy into her tent so he, she can get a $10 hit for the trading of her own flesh and her body and never, ever once judging any of them, just loving them being encompassed in their need to be accepted and to be there for them as an example, instead of a Bible book beating uh, pastor that's going to, uh, you know, create condemnation or other such fears, Scott, that people tend to align themselves with when they have lost their self-esteem and they've allowed themselves to transcend through whatever scenario. Um, so we need, as, as survivors of tragic and crisis events, we need to show by example that there is a way to dig out of the well. I, uh, the people that I've known that have committed suicide, uh, COVID deaths even recently, all, all these experiences, we, uh, as you made a comment earlier that I reflected on, we always think to ourselves, what more could we have done? How could I have read the signs in advance that I could have saved the life of this beautiful person? And what we have to do is recognize that without proper training, we can also encourage it to come on faster, Scott, 
So we have to be able to step back and take that breath of recognition of where do we fit in the whole concept of the salvation of other life, other principle, other, uh, other things that we independently can offer to a community to make a community come together in greater strength and to benefit as a community one and all. Through all of these experiences, these challenges, these dark times, all of it, and it hits you as you're reading the book of all of these things that you've been through, has there ever been a moment where you regretted any of it, the experiences and and who it's made you today and the people you've been able to impact because of that adversity and those challenges? Does that thought ever cross your mind or has it ever crossed your mind? Boy, Scott, that is an absolutely excellent question. That's the best one you've asked. I tell you, there's not a day goes by that I don't carry some form of remorse. Uh, I do have accountability within myself for anything that I've been involved with that did bring harm or death to other people. Um, Yes, of course, anybody that's humane and human would carry that, I would hope. But the beautiful thing about that is if you have the compassion and acceptance to uh, to learn from the suffering, if you will, kind of like Christ suffered on the cross and look at what we all learned as a result. That's a good synopsis. I'm not going to get into religion or politics, but I am going to use example. So anyway, uh, yeah, you, you uh, there isn't a day goes by that those kind of memories don't flash. And after the execution, when they killed me out here uh, last June 7th, I've been with a PTSD doctor at the VA hospital and my doctor, what she says, what's so unique is usually PTSD patients come back from combat and what happened to them happened on foreign land. I was once kidnapped on foreign land and tortured, so I get it. But this here is every day because they've been back now twice trying to kill me since that episode. So it's an ongoing thing. And I, uh, I have peace and, uh, I do have reservation when I walk out the door because I understand the severity of the world that I spent a third of my life in. I realize that a kill order is a kill order until it's completed. It's incomplete. Uh, But, you know, there you go. Uh, You can take something like that that's hanging over you. And you you talk about an, an exaggeration of stress. Imagine knowing that every time you walk out the door, you can get a bullet put in your head. And how do you deal with that and still maintain a quality of life and still serve your community? And therein lies what my book explains in my book outlines, Scott, that we can't let obstacles control us. We have to learn to control the obstacle. And if we're on a positive direction and a positive source of knowing, if you will, that beneficially, uh, even taking the risk, taking the chance, uh, the benefit will also not only reclaim your conscience and your soul from that which you have survived over decades of, uh, of, of, of violence, if you will, Um, and turn it into the goodness that you go now I would not have the knowledge Scott today had I not survived the multiple experiences and had gone through such a lifestyle yeah so it's pretty fascinating and uh and I I thank God every day for the life that I have and I do not live in fear and I do not live in uh lack of acceptance of my responsibility that culminated in the kill order being put on me Darn right. You know, I got I left Leavenworth Federal Prison and I was recruited by agencies in the Department of Justice to become a contractor. And it's not because I was a rat or a snitch. It's because I wasn't a rat or a snitch. And they knew they could put agency people in my care. And I retired three years ago, barely surviving an intensive firefight in uh, central Sonora. It took two days to get me smuggled out of the area. Chapel Guzman had, uh, was in custody at the time, and they were transferring him stateside when this incident occurred. Uh, the Sinaloa drug cartel splintered into a million factions, and everybody was territorializing their zones for drug trade routes, human trafficking, whatever was going on. And uh, I got caught up in the middle of it. I was actually down there on uh, burying my next-door neighbor's mother. But uh, I was still under contract, and... I made it to the United States and the very next day I sat down with the team, debriefed out and rescinded my contract after 17 years of working as a contractor. I just, I was at the age of 63 and just realized it was time to, uh, to go back to focusing more on other ways of paying back for the sins of my younger years. And bear in mind, Scott, during the 17 years of being a DOJ contractor, almost all of that was out of the United States 
work in very hairy cases with very trained and professional military personnel and governmental agency personnel. It was, it was an honor. But, you know, it's also an honor to sit around a campfire at night and uh, clean an abscess on a person's arm that's afraid to go to the hospital because they have felony warrants, which means they'll get incarcerated and can't get to their drugs the next day. These are really conflicting scenarios of serving uh, your community. But you know what? I find that putting an arm around somebody and letting them know that they're loved and that they're appreciated starts to create a semblance of recovery, if you will. We, you know, we put people in these recovery programs, but you got to realize, Scott, those programs are conditionalized. And the people that are sitting out there in these homeless camps and communities, they're out there because of lack of discipline. So how do we expect that kind of recovery process to work for them? People that are sitting there dealing with suicide, for instance, and they're put on a 911 call uh, to talk to a counselor that they don't even see the face of on the other nine. It's not the same thing as sitting around a campfire uh, you know, with your arm on the shoulder of a brother or a sister and letting them know just how valuable they are to you and to other people. And, uh, again, I've seen some people step over people on sidewalks, and I don't know how you can even do that. And I have lived a horrific life, and I have seen a lot worse than that. But today, I would rather bend down on a knee and shake a hand and introduce myself. And I don't care if they want to use the dollar I'm going to drop in their cup to buy a beer or, or whatever. I'm doing it because I want to do it, and I'm doing it for the right reason. And again, Scott, example. We have to set examples in this life. And uh, until, we, until we as a, a community, if you will, a nation even, a planet even, come together and to look at that which benefits one another, by the true compassion that every one of us are instituted with at birth, we have to come back to that. And by coming back to that, we can revive and make life wonderful in the most critical crisis events that we may be encountering in that moment. I could, I could not that, agree with you more. There is, there is unfortunately thank you. Thank you. a lack of empathy and I don't want to say that it's non-existent because as human beings, we normally focus on the things that we still need to do or we still need to accomplish, the areas of improvement. You look over a vehicle, the first place you look for a used vehicle is a spot of rust, not the, the yes. fact that 98% of the vehicle is in great shape, great condition, will get you from point A to point B. And we do the same thing with ourselves. And then we amplify that and do the same thing with other people. And I love the point that you had brought up about the the non-judgment aspect, you know, leading with just love and that empathy component and not sitting yes. there on judgment and judging people because we do ourselves an injustice by judging ourselves every day. And so therefore we judge other people. It's very interesting when you can stop judging yourself, you stop judging other people. And those things go hand in hand. And I've seen it play out many, many, many times. And it's also this component of contacts that we just lack. You know, I just had someone yes. else on the podcast and we were talking about that. You don't know the pain, the 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 past they've been through, currently what they're going through. And so that's why leading with empathy and, and understanding and letting down, letting go of all of that judgment is one of the most powerful things as opposed to building a wall that's even more difficult for you to climb over and the other person to come over. But I really love that point around not judging. We need to lead with way more empathy. There is, you know, I, I'm a, a very optimistic person and I know that there's a lot of good on this planet. The yes. thing is that many people, again, going back to that rust analogy, focus on the dark side of things as opposed to the positive side of things. And right now, you know, our country is very divided and there's a lot going on and it's all what you make of it and what you want to pay attention to because the the bad seems this big, not taking up 96% of the screen, when in reality, yes. that's not the case at all. You control how you react, how you show up, how you treat people. All of those things you control. So well said. So well said. You know, you're one of the few people, and I mean this with sincerity, that I would even take into some of the camp environments that I have gone down and ministered into because you're, you're so dead bang on about the compassion and the reality of self-forgiveness. You can't start working with other people until you've cleared your own consciousness 
and got yourself aligned to where you know that you need to be for specific people and their specific needs. And identifying that, Scott, uh, that, that this comes in great measures. I'm very, very impressed to hear you say those words. And this Appreciate isn't that. an ego. Yeah, it's not an ego thing that I'm trying to convey to you. It's just recognition of a brother that's aligned like I am about how we need to be out there. And maybe, just maybe, if enough of us continue to go in that direction, that giant black void of evil and negativity that we're all confronted with at this current time will start to recede. You know, there's always a rainbow at the end of the, the rainstorm mm-hmm. and we need to get, we need to get people in mass focused on that way. And this will start, uh, this will start taking down the stress levels that we're currently experiencing with people that have never been, uh, Scott, in a serious crisis event in their life until this particular time right now. An example, the pandemic. People are not designed to be isolated. We are certainly not designed to be separated from one another. And this is why we're seeing the suicide uh, epidemic, if you will, rapidly increasing. Uh, They'll say, I'd rather catch COVID than to be locked in my room all day. And I'm going to go out there and bang, they catch COVID and come back and kill three people in their family. And now they have to self-forgive. This is another indicative part of the revolution of mistakes that people tend to make knowingly, wittingly, and openly. And they do it repetitiously. What we have to do instead is show them an alternative path to how they approach their own self uh, negative issues and how do they approach the ability to forgive themselves for the sins that they have survived. There is such great wisdom in coming coming through to the other side, so to speak. Send a redemption. I love to, re- to, to say that to people because... I have lived a very sinful, violent, and dangerous life, and I have survived that life for purpose. And that purpose was to come on to programs like I am with you, preach as a guest pastor in the pulpit marinas, arenas of other churches, on and on. There's, there's a message that needs to be displayed. And this doesn't glorify you or me. This glorifies something that's larger than we are. And that's where we need to get because then ego becomes controllable. And then uh, purpose and definition of taking and surviving so many horrific things. Uh, And I I realize a lot of people haven't lived like I did, Scott. I'm not naive to that way of thinking. I started seeing people getting whacked when I was 15 years old. I've seen it my whole life. But what I have also seen is I have seen people, as they were laid face down on the ground, who just got busted with 500 kilos of cocaine. And I'd put a hand on their shoulder and they would sit there crying out tears saying, thank you and thank God, because it's finally over. Acceptance, recognition of the end of suffering and the beginning of another challenge of life that could be beneficial not only to the individual, but to the community he becomes a part of. And uh, when I was working as a hospice counselor in the federal prison, I took 24 prisoners through the dying process. And my seminarial study hall was in those rooms every single day with just me and one person dying. And that's how I learned the Bible. And that's how I learned all of my seminarial studies. And I spent two and a half years doing that before I graduated. And I look back today at the uh, opportunity, if you will, to have such a love and compassion for a man that I'd never known in my life four or five weeks earlier. And I'm his counselor. And in prison, they don't allow a prisoner to die in the presence around other prisoners. They put them in a room by themselves, Scott, and let them die alone. And what they did was during the, I've been out of prison 22 years, a long time now, but during the time I was in there, that's when they instituted training uh, prisoners to take other prisoners through the dying process. It was a fascinating program. And, uh, but let me tell you, it was through their shared stories and their experiences that I got to become a part of all 24 of them. And I remember face and I remember the last moment that they took their last breath and I remember so very very much in detail the sadness of dying in a prison instead of dying at home with your loved ones around you and to be able to take that information and that knowledge out of the prison lifestyle and introduce it out here as a as a hospice chaplain which I still am to this day this is my 23rd year and I have a patient right now within a couple of days of passing that I'm going to be taking care of. And it's very hard with COVID because you can't expose the families. You can't be there. Some of it's done on Zoom camera now. I mean, giving last rites is supposed to be a very emotional and heart-binding concept where I'm holding the hand or stroking the forehead of someone that is getting ready to cross over and to say the words that need to be said to bring 
peace to not only the person in the dying process, but those that are present. So we have to learn how to maneuver through these new crisis events, Scott. And the way we do that is to transform ourselves into an understanding of a new approach to these events and a, an approach of compatibility uh, and an approach that's also compounded with great compassion. Because even as you and I look at each other and we're talking right now on this program, I see the, the sincerity of the look in your face and I know you see it in me. And we're both being touched by this opportunity as two aligned souls to get another message out that may benefit somebody in a crisis event today even you highlighted that beautifully and i think you even made a there's a couple sentences in your book where you bring to light the spotlight of how beautiful being alive and on this planet is and how truly special that is and i think that with all of the stimulation we have every day, you know, whether it be COVID, whether it be the news or whether it be your job or relationship, whatever it is, we lose sight sometimes of how truly fortunate we are to be breathing and crunching the rocks between our, below our feet. And we most days fail to realize that. And I've even caught myself over the years Thinking that in these crisis moments, whether it be with business, whether it be with relationship, that, and you highlight this in your book, that was the end all be all. And for me, I have to rip open this place of of clarity and perspective. So my my grandmother is an immigrant, came over here from Portugal. Her family was extremely poor. I mean, down on their hands and knees, scrubbing homes of of wealthier people in Portugal. This was years back. She moved here back in the 60s, I think. And every time I sit down with her, I have her just tell me her story of where she came from to give me that reminder of context. And every single time when I walk away from those stories, it's just a great reminder for me to put life in perspective. And I even think about this all the time, even this, this, the world of COVID and people, you know, being in their homes alone and all of these other things, certainly not discrediting the, the trauma that's in there for some people in the process that they're going through. Yes. But the context to understand that there are many, many other things happening in the world to other people that are a thousand times more challenging. And I always think about this. Imagine living in a world where we're in World War One or World War Two. You know, these these are 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 crazy world events. And again, certainly not taking away from anything that anybody's going through today. But for me, in those (laughs) moments of difficulty and challenges, I take a step back and say, let me provide some some perspective for myself, because I need to I need to be realigned with, is this actually truly a thing I can't control? And most times, you can control those moments. You can take a step away. You can pause. You can reflect. You can gain elevation. You can paint that picture over for yourself. You're the daily artist of your life. You get to determine what the painting looks like every day. You get to pick up the brush and you get to make the strokes as big or thin as you want and get to pick up each of those tools. And for me, that perspective helps me to break through that crisis and get into the control stability mode to think wisely and smart about my decision so that I don't further incur more crisis. That's so eloquently put, and I agree with you 100% on all of it. As you know, Scott, I've got a doctorate in Christian pastoral counseling. I'm a seminarial postgrad, but I also have a master's degree in metaphysics. And I like to bring this into the conversation, if if you will, right now, because when we look at how we uh, confront, if you will, such crisis event uh, issues and images that are confronting with conflicting with so many today, you know, as a metaphysicist, we have to look at body, mind, and soul, the Trinitarian creation of that, which we are, and to try to find a balance between these three. If you notice in the book, one chapter is devoted to meditation. Another part, I talk about breathing exercises uh, because you need to get the cortisol flowing properly within the conduit of the mind. So you can think with that clarity that you had just mentioned. Anything that we approach in life, any crisis or catastrophic event, whatever it may be, we have to be able, one, to identify that it's real, two, where do we assess the reality, and three, how do we overcome this uh, assessed new crisis event that confronts us? And uh, my 
fervent belief is if you don't still the mind, all you're going to do is compound whatever event that you may be confronted with. So very, very important to accept the realities, accept uh, your circumstances that you find yourself involved with in that instant. And then once acceptance has happened, that part of uh, the struggle that you're dealing with in your consciousness has been eliminated. Now we start focusing on a way to find an alternative to uh, come up from that, which is uh, keeping us so so well held down. And I, I really like the way that you put that last segment of your conversation together. It was eloquently done, and it is how we need to perceive life as we see life through our own set. And people need to come into contact with that because they become distracted in that darkness you were talking about earlier becomes a much larger because of the distractions that are being brought about as a result of the cultural changes we're all experiencing and identifying with today. You talk about the news media, you talk about the politicians that are going out there and the mass division that we have never seen in this country since the time of the civil war. And we are right in the heart of it. And we don't see clear end in sight. What happens is that creates a fight or flight panic mode scenario to the majority of the people that are sitting at home in front of that TV, watching that news and going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, you know, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Well, I liked how you said you need to separate from that for the moment. You need to get something else to align yourself into. And this is the self-survival process, uh, Scott, that each and every one of us have to achieve. And it doesn't take any of us being a brain scientist to get there. That book that I that you have, my book, Crisis Victory, I simplified it to where it could be. Yeah, exactly, brother. And I simplified that book down purposely so that the average person could pick that up and go, wow, this makes nothing but sense to me. And thanks, this helps me today. I'm going to get through it. I don't know if you've been told this or not by the people that introduced you and I, but I have a tribe in Kenya, Africa, using this book right now as a guideline to survive horrific crises that they are going through right now. And they got a hold of me and told me, thank you, Pastor, for this amazing book. We understand it. And that's it. You and I, as we put forth these, these messages and these meanings, need to not only submit them in clarity, but in basic understanding. I cannot uh, talk at a doctoral level to somebody sitting on a log and, and that just shot up a load of heroin at a firefighting camp or at a camp down there on the river and, uh, and try to explain reality. What I have to do instead is go by example. And day by day, we can recover one. I had the pleasure of a rape victim. Uh, I used to have them dropped off here at my home. I've been here 15 years and I get a knock at two or three in the morning and be another unconscious person left on my doorstep and I bring them in and clean them up and feed them and pray for them. And, and then I would listen to their story. And this one lady that I'd like to share with your audience was left here unconscious. And she, on my website, she gives her interview there, but uh, she had just been raped, uh, multiple raped and uh, beaten, robbed of her drugs. And uh, somebody at the camp said she couldn't go to the hospital because she had a felony warrant out for her. And that means she would get locked up and couldn't sell her body the next day to get more drugs. So they said, oh, we know this pastor. We can take you to him. He's, you know, he can, he can take care of you. And uh, she was dropped off here. And, and like I said, I brought her in and cared for her. But now it's two years later, she got a hold of me. And I had her do the testimony on my website because it was so touching to me. She says, I, I'm no longer a prostitute. I'm no longer on heroin. I've, I'm, I'm on a good direction in life. And, you know, it wasn't because of you, Pastor. It, we, it was because of a someone had an interest in me that went beyond what I was having to do with my life to have my interests met daily. In other words, there was no price for compassion. And that triggered it right there. And that put that human being on a whole nother path of life that is now benefiting other human beings. And I'm so deeply touched and so proud of her for coming out of it because she's only one of, of many that have been brought here over the years like that. But you know, even you and I need to hear a success story from time to time to keep surviving, working in such a critical element that we find ourselves in every day. It's a beautiful story. It's this. So proud of her. It's this passing on of 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 happiness and life and just yeah. creating that in perpetuity for people. The feeling that you go through when you're able to deliver on a promise to yourself, whether it be, you know, doing yes. something for the day or, you know, a, a big goal, an achievement, whatever the case is, 
the feeling that you get, and I know I'm certainly preaching to you on this one, to help other people and and see the impact and then what they pass on. I think of it as almost, you know, those the the Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks scenario when someone says, Hey, I'll pay for the next car behind me, and then that gets yeah. passed on. Just seeing that example is such a micro example of such a large scale of what we can create when we just help people. And I, I use this phrase of when you give into the system, the system always gives back. But the point is yes. to never give into the system with the expectation of getting something in return, because then Absolutely the, the right. whole point and the objective completely goes out the window because there's, there's an expectation of some sort of reward, just helping someone to merely help someone is the best feeling on the planet to see them smile. I had a woman that reached out to me. She's it had to have been last year. Maybe she was a nurse. She was working crazy hours and she, a lot of her colleagues, including her family said, you're working too much and we can tell you're getting drained. You're stressed out and you're just not acting yourself. And one day driving into the hospital, she was on the phone with her mother over the um, over the Bluetooth, and being a nurse, she felt that she was about to pass out, and she was pulling through an intersection, and she took an alley, turned off, and ended up passing out and hit a building head-on in her car, and she was told by many people, you need to go to therapy, you need to do this, you need to work through this, and she ended up stumbling upon my podcast, and she said, wow. Scott, you literally... I don't know. And her husband ended up reaching out to me. You don't know how much you you truly impacted and changed the course of my life. Because here everybody was saying that I need to talk to different people and I need to do this. And everybody's giving me all these different pieces of advice, which there's always a lot of that floating around. You said I found your podcast and started listening to it and completely shifted my perspective and mindset on life. And I remember very vividly. And I have a picture of her message. I asked if I could share her story and I shared it with everybody. Just reading that message, the goosebumps that ran up my arms and my back. And I, I remember just sitting there looking at my phone in this DM and my girlfriend looking at me and being like, everything all right? And I was just there was nothing coming out of my mouth. I couldn't talk. I couldn't, which is unlike me. I love to talk. Obviously, <laughs> I have podcasts, and I was just speechless. And those feelings are are something that's so truly special that I I've always wanted for other people to experience. And that discovery or helping people allows you to come to a place of discovery. Like, why did that mean so much to me helping that other person? You know, what's the origin story with those emotions and where they've come from? And there's so much discovery and impact that you can create. And it's funny, you hear people say it all the time. One person can literally change the world. It is a thousand percent true. Even if you're impacting one person, whether it be yourself, your grandmother, your friend, a colleague, a stranger on the street, that is changing. Changing the world because of to your story how then that other person it's this huge compound this domino effect that the the whole shift of a timeline completely changes its trajectory it would have gone from negativity and sadness or maybe someone not feeling good about themselves or confident in the way that they look or whatever to actually telling someone wow you look really good or you did an amazing job, whatever it could be a sentence. And then how that shifts the, the timeline, talk about changing the future. That's changing the future. I so love that. That's exactly how I feel when those incidents occur in my life. And I've had several hundred of them, Scott, it's, it's not about us or ego at all. What it is is about seeing the manifestation of love in its process and its progress and how the manifestation of love becomes passed down to another person through another person it's like uh planting the seed and another person comes to water the seed and another person comes to harvest the fruit and this is exactly what you just beautifully explained and that is how we need to get other people in their crisis times where they're being so distracted with the negativity of surviving whatever they may be going through is to let them know that we also have love that carries within us and when you start the moment you start thinking about something of love and compassion do you notice how rapidly the negativity diminishes 
this is yes exactly scott and this yep. is what we need yep. to be able to convey and the only way we convey that brother is by example you you literally have to walk the walk because that energy that uh that nurse felt through meeting your podcast and hearing what she heard that totally tr- uh, started putting her in another way of looking at her scenario this is something that got passed on and now she is passing that through her loving hands to the patient she's taking care of to her family who awaits her to come home at night on and on and on. It is such a reflective benefit. And Mm -hmm. I, I just really, uh, you know, I I align with you so perfectly with your, uh, with your, your comments. I'm there brother. And, and I've been there for a lot of years. This is my 19th year working with the homeless and destitute and working out there in an incredibly violent uh, environment. And, uh, you know, it'd be so crazy. I was uh, installed with my own church. I uh, had been out of the church in 2007, but I had it for three years. And I would be sitting there on a Wednesday night preparing for my sermon on the pulpit on Sunday. And the phone would ring and it'd be some agency personnel saying, pack a bag, you're on your way to Bogota tomorrow morning. And here I am. I was just putting together this prayer of love and I'm getting ready to go down there and get involved in something extremely dangerous and uh, hopefully productive to help other people. What we, we see when we get there and if we even survive it and to come back and I'm back by Sunday and I'm up in the pulpit and I'm preaching with all these other thoughts that are going through my mind of what I just walked out of. And I can remember uh, so many times experiencing that in the 19 years that I've worked at the homeless and destitute Scott, 17 of those years, I was a DOJ contractor taking off two, maybe three times a year on missions outside of the country and other times speaking in the pulpit arena. And of course, as a hospice chaplain certified in that trade, I'm, you know, I'm up on the sixth floor at Providence doing last right services and comforting families and all of this stuff at the exact same time. And this is what I meant on a metaphysical slant, how we have to balance things as they encroach our life. You have this segment of going on, you have this segment going on, and then you have to find conformity that uh, ultimately everything that you are doing is not only heading in a constructive and a positive ritualistic way, but can be conveyed and passed on for other people by example, brother, by example, to, uh, to share. And you so perfectly explained that in your story of the nurse. Thank you for sharing that. I will take that from this today and reflect on that later. That's amazing. Yeah, That was amazing. I loved it. The the image that's coming to mind uh, on this word balance that yes. that you touched upon is a newborn giraffe or horse, right? When they're born, their legs are 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 so weak. And yes. part of that is the weakness, but part of that's also the balance. And life is itself, it's never balanced. So it's our job for our happiness, our success, all of those things to become balanced within it. So yeah. whether the left is really high up, the middle's a little further down, three quarters of the way, and the, the right's all the way down to the ground, it's our job every day with our four legs, if you will, two legs, two arms, to balance in between all of those moving pieces, almost like you know rocks moving below us. And we try so hard sometimes to like force those things, you know, that acceptance piece that you were talking about into the perfect, perfect, like plateau to walk on. When in reality, the ground is never even below our feet. It's never even. But if we can have that balance in our life, so that way we do feel even like a suspension on a car, no matter the terrain it goes over, the cab always stays parallel with the ground. And that's how I think about life for people too. It's not forcing this, this way of trying to change the plan and what's going on. That's something you certainly cannot control, but you can accept the fact that the ground is never smooth and you can adjust your suspension every single day. I'm a super fan of process and balance is the key on, on all of them. I had Joanne Von Born. She's an executive coach on the podcast a bit back and we touched upon balanced and I I'm a huge fan of it. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, based on the fact that the universe is not always in sync and not always in balance, that we have an obligation unto ourselves to form our interpretation, if you will, of a correct dimension of balance that seems to bring the uh, complacency and the comfort and the compassion into our independent life. And what happens is it's an energy. 
And once that energy has been created, that energy is reflective and other people grab onto it. It's like putting your arm around a homeless person on a sidewalk and, and just taking that moment to hear what's going on in their life in that moment. It's that energy that is created in that moment that passes over to that person. And you never, ever, ever know, but you can feel that maybe that energy today will be sustainable through that person, that contact, and will be shared again down the road. Like the Starbucks, the guy in front of you bought you the cup of coffee. That was such a great analogy of that. Because look at how that, re- I mean, they even put that on the news when people do something as simple, right. as small as that gesture. But look at how impactful a gesture can become. Your right. podcast, the audience that you read, it's an it's amazing, a beneficial tool And the message you're trying to send out, and I was so grateful for this particular interview. I've done so many, but this one was really special to me because I reviewed you before I did this. And I was just so pleased at your direction, your intent, your purpose, and Scott, your example. I I keep going to example, my brother. I appreciate that. I got nothing but love for you, man. And I really see the benefit that your listeners have as a result of uh, the clients you pick, the, the 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 precision that you're putting into this because you have a goal set. You have a specific purpose of why you're doing this. And this is what I try to integrate to all that I encompass daily and, and let them know that there is specific purpose of their life and a benefit to them sharing that life, no matter what they may be, uh, may be thinking of themselves. The moment you do an act of kindness, what happens? You start shining a little brighter, correct? Mm-hmm. I, I know that we do. Yeah. And uh, it, it's it's like the contract killer that they sent to kill me. Uh, you know, when he left me for, when he stabbed the knife in my brain and I was losing, I, I knew I was dying within those seconds. And I just accepted the moment of my death. And I was so, um, so happy and so peaceful and so ready to let go of all of this. And then I, I died. It was over. And he left, he departed. And when I was uh, revived in a hospital a day or two later, still can't remember the exact time but when I came out of it my first thought was of him and I understand what it is to have a name written on a piece of paper and an address to go to but the way he got me it was amazing he came up to my home which is security uh I have security here and knocks on the door and this is midnight woke me up out of a dead sleep Scott but his energy was oh I'm a tow truck driver I just backed into your 79 Corvette Stingray I did some damage to it we please sir come down and we can you know assess it and take care of this problem and 10 years ago I would have never fallen for that but what he did hygienically clean dressed like a tow truck driver I mean he had all of his ducks in order that in my initial acceptance of his story I bought into it <clears throat> this is how influential and effectual and I almost that that buying into that almost cost me my life 10 minutes later <clears throat> so how we approach people you have to be able to also discern the realities of why somebody has an integrated interest in you in the first place why are they coming at you and to what benefit will uh, they make first because if you don't analyze their personal benefit uh, as you're preparing to approach a scenario sitting on a sidewalk, for instance, with a homeless person or at a camp or the things like that that I experience daily, you you have to understand intent because your safety, your life may very well depend on it. So here you go. The perfect example. He smelled good, hygienically clean, wore the baseball cap and the shirt like a tow truck driver. I mean, the guy was in perfect performance and uh, came here and com- completed a mission. It's remarkable Think about the, the 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 stories and or just the experiences that you've been through. This is the time. This is why you know reading this book. There's stuff that I just had to go back through because yes. for a moment I was like, I gotta I'm trying to put myself in your shoes in some of these scenarios, and I'm like, this is nearly impossible to think about yes, some of the stuff is. that you've been through, and it's and it's remarkable. And I think that your story speaks absolute volume. Because the material, the challenges that you faced, and those are such yeah. light words, I think, of the context of everything that you've been through and what you're going and what the other person's going through, it's you can get through this. It's possible. Yes. In the moment, it's I almost think of these like layers crust outside of, and I had a gentleman 
He's a coach in London. His name's Jericho. Phenomenal guest on the podcast. And we were talking about this a little bit, but all of these layers that you build up. Yes. Just all the stimulation that you're getting hit of your heartbeat, your, your blood rushing through your veins, you're sweating, blinking a lot, all of those things. You're just doing everything in your power to fight off the emotions that you have rising in that moment. So to get to a place of elevation and to evaluate wisely and actually use your intelligence is extremely challenging. And I have a sticky note on my desk and I remind myself of this every day. It's not just when I'm at my desk, but it says, I'm the CEO of my life. What would I do? I get to control every single piece of this. And it's just a little reminder for me every single day when I'm faced with a challenge that, hey, I'm the CEO. I've got this. Uh, I, I love it. Decision. And if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to judge myself on the fact that it didn't work out. It is no. what it is. I made a decision. I learned that decision in which I thought was tactful didn't pan out to, to my hypothesis. But the fact is now I have information. It's why, you know, we have at one of our companies, our VP of R&D, she's a scientist and she says something along the lines of, you know, this is a trial. We don't know what's going to happen, but we've got to yeah. figure it out. That's why we're doing a trial. That's why we're actually applying some science here because we don't know. We have some speculation as to what will happen because of some of the data that we have over here. But the point is to sift through that data, apply some of it and analyze yes. and say, did it work or did it didn't, did it not? And then you move on and you try a different trial. That is exactly what life is about. We're going through a trial. Nobody has a book of, hey, we know how to do all of these things. There are some tips that we have. You know, you obviously break down some 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 beautiful steps here, but it's what the the basics remain the same, but how you deploy those things change on a micro scale. And something might work for Stuart and something might work differently for Becky, a different set of things. But I do think it's a it's a great reminder every single day to just remind ourselves that we have control over a lot more than we think we have control of. And thinking that we don't control the steering wheel of our li our lives, that's scary. I mean, look at people aren't even a fan of of uh, Tesla self-driving cars because they don't want to lose the control. But yet every yes. day they trick themselves into thinking that they don't have control. Yes. I, I love that. You know, the whole, my whole take on everything you just said there was ba getting back to basic. I love that, that you hit on that. And what is the most basic thing of all, as we find ourselves confronted in crisis events, brother, it's our breathing. Yeah. If you cannot breathe right and bring yourself into a proper quorum to be able to focus yourself and to get aligned with the thoughts that you need to have in that critical moment, then you end up in fi uh, fight or flight mode where you're totally uh, not only imbalanced, but you're totally out of context to be able to create an immediate scenario to survive it. So what you're talking about there, about the basics, that is exactly correct on how we confront any and all aspects of life and breathing. Breathing, breathing. as simple as breathing. Dr. Bradley, you're... I loved having you on. I love, thank, thank you so you. much for sharing your your wisdom, your experience, and most of all, putting your your passion and your love into the system and passing that along. Cause I know that as you stated earlier, you've impacted hundreds and hundreds of people. Where can people one find your book and follow your beautiful journey as you create even more of an impact on this planet? Uh, thank you for the kind words, Scott. God love you for it. Uh, the book can be found at crisisvictory.com uh, online. Uh, another way is through Amazon. We market it through Amazon or Beverly Hills Publishing, uh, Andrea, my publisher, who's absolutely fabulous. She uh, has been a really good source for people to acquire the book. But uh, most importantly, the thing that we need to take at the end of this as we're closing out, Scott, is for us to go forth and to love one another and to not only say it, but to show it by example. And brother, you certainly do with your podcast. I mean, it was an honor meeting you today. It really was. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise. I hope, Dr. Bradley, we can stay in contact. I know I can learn I a too. ton from you. Um, and I want to continue to hear the the big footprint that you leave on this big blue and green planet because um, it's special to watch and hear. So thank you for everything that you do. 
Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into crisis victory with Dr. Bradley. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at the motivated underscore mind and on Facebook at the motivated mind podcast. Don't forget to join me next week for another episode. I love you all and thanks so much for listening. Motivated Mind is a mindset production.